Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of a blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, today we come and we believe your word is trustworthy and true. And we ask today that you write this word upon our hearts, that we take hold of all that is ours in your son, Jesus, that we know the blessings of grace and forgiveness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send forth your spirit, light and truth, work within us and lead us in your way. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his widely renowned book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, argues that every culture in the history of the world possesses a vision of the good life, a vision of what it means to flourish and to prosper as a human being. This vision typically is not explicit. That is, it's nowhere spelled out. It operates in the background of our thinking, and it operates in the background of our values. It's taken for granted. It's a common set of assumptions that go unchallenged and uncontested. It's simply part of life in the culture that we inhabit. And Christianity is really no different, that we too have a vision of the good life that defines what it means to flourish as a human being. But perhaps one of the differences is that it's explicitly laid out for us. We could define it in many ways, but one interesting way to answer the question of what does it mean to flourish as a Christian is to define that from the book of Psalms itself. Because in the book of Psalms, we will find many different statements of blessedness the happy life, the fulfilled life, the satisfying life, statements that we call beatitudes. And they're sprinkled throughout the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 112, verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Or Psalm 65, in verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Or Psalm 94. Blessed is the man whom you discipline and whom you teach out of your law. That this is part of this global vision of what it means to have a happy and flourishing life before God, the blessed person. But among these blessed statements, we also arrive at Psalm 32. It counts itself as one of these beatitudes, but there's also something different 
Something that differentiates the beatitude in Psalm 32 from every other beatitude in Scripture. And that is that we have a doubling of the beatitude. Twice we are told about the blessed one. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so it's important for us to ask the question, why does the psalm, why does David double down on the blessing of forgiveness from God? John Calvin, in his commentary, helpfully observes this. And he says that the reason for the emphasis is that all that Scripture says about blessedness in other Beatitudes depends upon the blessedness commended here. In other words, the blessedness commended here in Psalm 32 is the gateway to all other blessedness that Scripture teaches us about. That God's grace and God's forgiveness is the pathway to experience all, of, all that God has for us in a happy and fulfilled and satisfying life. And so this morning, it's critical for us to ask and to answer simply one question is how do we tap into that? How do we experience that? How do we know this double blessing from God? How do we experience it? And there's three things that Psalm 32 will argue. First is that we have to renounce our resistance to God's grace. And second is that we must avail ourselves of God's grace And finally, that we must embrace the fruits of God's grace. And so ahead of coming to the table, a feast in which we celebrate the grace of God, let's look at each of these three points carefully. First, we must renounce our resistance to the grace of God. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist speaks of an experience in which he hides his sins from God. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so he's languishing in his silence, attempting to hide his sins from God. And it's critical for us to recognize that our silence is a form of hiding. That is, silence is an active strategy, an active strategy we use in order to shield ourselves in our guilt and in our shame. Adam retreated from God in the garden in his silence, industriously sewing his fig leaves together to cover his shame. And friends, this is what we're doing when we retreat from God. We hide in silence. But here's the problem is that when we do so, the strategy serves us poorly. And what we find in these two verses is what happens is that the sin that we are hiding becomes internalized, and it turns to then become part of us. Our bones waste away and our strength fails us, David says. It comes to eat us alive. Several years ago, Tyler Hamilton, former U.S. cyclist, published a book 
entitled The Secret Race. And Hamilton's book is interesting because it rocked the cycling world. It was an expose on blood doping and how this culture had infiltrated the U.S. cycling team. Days before the book released, Hamilton sat for an interview. And this is what he said. Listen carefully to it. Here's what I was learning. Secrets are poison. They suck the life out of you. They steal your ability to live in the present. They build walls between you and the people you love. And friends, this is what happens in silence. It's a strategy we use to shield ourselves so that we don't have to deal with guilt and shame. But the sin doesn't simply go away. It becomes part of us. It begins to eat away at us. It begins to suck life out of us. It has a force and a life. And when we manage it by silence, it will come back to haunt us. And this is what happens when we decide to manage sin according to our own human wisdom. And so we must turn away from that. And this leads us into our second point, that we must avail ourselves of the grace of God. Because after stating that sin will destroy us and suck the life out of us and bring us down into God's judgment, there's a transition in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so David here moves from his silence in which he had retreated from God. And now he moves into speech, into an acknowledgement of his wrongdoing before God. And in verse 5, it's helpful to note that David uses three words here. Three words for sin. He uses the common word sin. He uses the word iniquity. And he uses the word transgression when he speaks of his wrongdoing. What's important for us to understand that in the original language, there were only three words available to speak of breaking God's law and turning against what God had commanded us to do. And those three words were sin and iniquity and transgression. And so what David is emphasizing here is that all of our offenses against God, of whatever sort, whether of commission or omission, whether what we consider to be small or great, that all of our sin, all of our iniquity, all of our transgression is forgiven by God when we turn to him for grace. And so David moves from sin concealed to sin confessed and sin forgiven. Rather than hiding sins, he's hidden in God. And friends, this is the turn that we must take. We turn to our refuge, the refuge that has been appointed for us, our Lord Jesus, who comes and gives himself in our place as a perfect offering. He receives our condemnation and our punishment, the judgment due our sin. And when we turn to him in faith, we hide in him that he is the refuge, he is the security, he is the safe place. And this is the most important thing for us to see in Psalm 32 because it is when we turn and we acknowledge our sins and we look to Jesus in faith 
that we step into the blessed life spoken of in verse 1 and 2. We see that in this psalm that the person who is blessed is also called godly in verse 6. And you'll see that another term is used in verse 11, that the blessed person is also righteous. But friends, this godly person and this righteous person is not any different than the one who has been forgiven because they are the same person, the godly, the blessed, the righteous. Those three terms point to the one who has confessed their transgressions to the Lord. Because to be godly, to be righteous, to be blessed is to be one who's been humbled before God and looks in faith to Jesus and to Jesus alone. And so David turns in verses 6 and 7 and he instructs us further in the way of availing ourselves of the grace of God after stating his own experience of moving from silence to speech. Listen to what he says. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The imagery is vivid here. It's something like a box canyon that during a hard rain, the waters will flood and come forcefully through, sweeping everything in their path away. And so David speaks of the rush of great waters. But he says that rush of great waters will not reach him. And friends, this is the truth of the gospel, that the rush of the waters, the chaos of our own sin will not reach us. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That we're rescued from the chaos of our own sin, our own silence, our own destructive behaviors. All that we do to turn against God, we're rescued from all of that rush of great waters when we call on God. When we call on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, when we confess our wrongs to him, that he is a hiding place for us that he preserves us from the trouble that we have done, that he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. And friends, today we need to hear those shouts of deliverance. We need to hear our Lord Jesus shout to us that he has delivered us, that you are his, that he belongs to you as well, that he is a refuge and a hiding place, and in him you are safe. That yes, you may feel the chaos of your own sin and your own rebellion against God. You may feel the shame of your silence and turning against him. But when you turn to him, he rescues you. That he is a refuge. He is a hiding place. He is safety from the storm of your own life. And friends, it's important for us to recognize that there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. This is the truth, that God's grace is more powerful than your sin. No matter the weight you may feel from it, that God's grace is weightier. That yes, we can trespass the boundaries of God's law, but the one boundary that we cannot trespass is the boundary of grace, 
because it extends further than the east is from the west, that God is full of steadfast love and forgiveness. As a young kid, we often took trips to the shores of uh, eastern North Carolina, the, the Bogue Sound in particular. We had a family friends who owned a family home and they had sailboats and fishing equipment and we had great fun there. And I remember on one of these trips, my parents learning to sail. They were on the small sailboat, the Sunfish, if any of you are familiar with it. It's not a mighty vessel. My dad had gone out sailing one time and then he comes back to shore and tells my mom, come on, jump in, I got this. They pushed off from the shore and maybe about 10 feet into their voyage, the boat flips. I hear my mother in the water. Butch! <laughs> You're lucky I can swim. She's flapping around beneath the sail. It had fallen on top of her. She works her way out, still angry at him, still protesting that he is so fortunate that she could swim. And then my dad stands up. <laughs> in knee-deep water. <laughs> he instructs my mom at that point that all she needed to do was stand up. That she was in no great danger. There was solid ground. Everything was safe. And friends, this is what David tells us today as well. All you have to do is stand up. That the rush of great waters, it won't reach you. That you have a hiding place. You have firm ground underneath you. That our Lord Jesus is there to keep you. That he is there to save you. He's there to deliver you. That he's the one who shouts, it is finished. And friends, that is the verdict over your lives as you look to him, as you not retreat into silence, but freely and openly confess your sins to him and acknowledge him as the one righteous place in which you can hide. Just stand up. Just look to Jesus. And finally, we see that the shape of this blessed life is one that embraces the fruits of grace. If you follow in verses 8 through 11, we see the contours of the life that's been intersected by the grace of God, and there are two main contours that this life takes. First, God speaks in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And this is the first contour, is the one whose life has been blessed, the one who has encountered the grace of God and received his mercy in Jesus, rescued from those rushing waters. That grace creates a teachable spirit, a desire to learn, we're like the garrison demoniac, delivered by Jesus, and then he's found sitting, clothed and in his right mind, at the feet of Jesus. This is who we are. It's not that we become perfect. It's not that we become righteous unto ourselves. But we become teachable, supple to Jesus, wanting to learn from him. Calvin 
after he got kicked out of Geneva, his first pastorate was a disaster. It lasted three years. And so he retreats to Strasbourg where he repaired himself to Martin Bucer, a mentor. And he begins pastoring the French-speaking church there in Strasbourg. And he writes a liturgy for the church to use. And in that liturgy, it's interesting to note something because he takes the Ten Commandments and they were read every week. And that's been a common practice in many worship services that the Ten Commandments would be read and they would be read prior to confession, typically. That the commandments would be read off in order to induce us to recognize areas where we've sinned against God. That's appropriate and good and true. But Calvin did something else appropriate, good, and true. He had the commandments read after confession and after the assurance of pardon. Because he saw not only did the commandments induce us to confess, but the commandments were God's good direction for the life that was blessed. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. Don't be like the horse. Don't be like the donkey. Don't need a bit and a bridle. Submit to me, hear me teach you, my words are good. And friends, that's the shape of the life that's been intersected by the grace of God. And then in verse 10 and 11, we see the final shape. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so not only is there a teachable spirit, there's a joyful spirit. One that rejoices in the good news of the gospel. That shouts for joy. That knows that their uprightness, their righteousness is only a gift. Their forgiveness comes from God and it comes from him alone. So there's gladness in the Lord. There's rejoicing before him. There's thanksgiving. And friends, this is one of those other marks of the life intersected by the grace of God that it doesn't sit back in stoic reserve, cautious, self-inhibited response. No, it gives thanks to God. It rejoices in the gifts of God in Jesus for us. And so, friends, the blessed life, the Christian vision of that is one that is forgiven by God. The double blessing announces for us that this is the path and the gateway to all other blessing. And we tap into that. We experience it. Renouncing resistance, our resistance to the grace of God and all the many strategies we use to hide. We avail ourselves of that grace with the simple acknowledgement and confession, turning to Jesus in faith. And we embrace those fruits, those fruits of being teachable and supple to God's instruction and turning to rejoice and to give thanks, to have hearts filled with gratitude. Friends, this is the thunder and the lightning of the gospel. The lightning is the grace of God coming into our lives through Jesus. And then the thunder simply rumbles in a teachable spirit, and in rejoicing and thanksgiving. And so let's offer our thanks to God today. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate this great double blessing 
It's ours not because of anything we have done. We are like our original parents. We retreat in silence. But you have asked us where we are, and you have found us, and you have rescued us. You have sent your son on our behalf, and you have clothed us. And so teach us to continue to walk in humility, not retreating into silence, but confessing our wrongdoing, looking to Jesus in faith and finding repair and amendment in him. And so give us clean and teachable hearts in which we would sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him and open our lips to confess your praise, to announce your goodness, to declare that you, the Lord, are upright. Be at work in us, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.